Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be talking about a familiar passage where Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, these, the abyss, uh, where all the, the demons that were, Jesus said in Matthew 25, he created hell for the devil and his angels. But he said, by the way, that hell has nothing against the church. I will build my church on the rock of Jesus Christ. And he said that at the rock that we're going to look at here pretty soon. And he said, these gods, these emperors, everything associated with the, the times of the Gentiles, with the times of this age, with the gods of this world, with the fallen angels, with the demons, with anything that's trying to thwart the plan of God, the king shows up and he says, I'm going to set up my church and, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. So I should have entitled this message Jesus versus Zeus versus Pan versus Hitler versus the fallen gods. But instead, we're going to take this idea from Matthew chapter 16. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So in verse 13 of Matthew 16, if you're there, and coming into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, we always say Caesarea, but it's, two, it's named after two people, Philip the Tetrarch and Caesar Augustus. And this was kind of like a little pagan retreat town in the north of Israel, as we'll, we'll discover here in a minute. It's kind of like their Sin City or their red light district. I used to live in Holland, Amsterdam, and I'm very familiar with the red light district because my church that I went to was in the red light district. So if you could imagine sex shows going on in the windows for all the public to see, take that and, and export it back 2,000 years ago to Caesarea Philippi, that's where they went. So Jesus went to the sin city. Of course, he's without sin. He's taking people to his disciples to the red light district, these good Jewish boys, right? They're probably like, Jesus is taking us to the red light district. What in the world are we doing? But Jesus asked his disciples in verse 13, saying, who do people, who do men, who do women, who do, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said unto them, but who do you say that I am? The question of questions, is it not? Who is Jesus to you? Where is Jesus to you? That's a good question, too. Where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? But he asked them, who do people say that I am? They answer with the lit litany of responses. And Jesus said, um, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood, man didn't reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven, because God is a spirit. God's not a man. He's a spirit. He's eternal. He's everlasting. He's uncreated. And Jesus is reporting back. He's like, this is a good, good, Peter. No one revealed to you, no one revealed that to you except my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto you, you are Peter. Um, the, the Petros, is his, Jesus names him Petros, which means little stone. And on this rock, and that word rock there is Petra, 
where if you've been to Jordan, um, that the city called Petra means large rock. Um, so there's small rock, big rock. Jesus said, on this rock, the big rock, and that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And he's at a big rock, by the way. There's a lot of rocks going on. There's a rock and roll going on right here. <laughs> he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Incidentally, we're going to find out, as Jesus is saying that, the gates of hell was right next to him. You're like, what in the Hades are you talking about, Neil? <laughs> That's Greek church cuss, cussing, by the way. Hades, hell, same thing. So let's, let's look at this. I already prayed, so I'm going to just get right into it. I want to say this, first of all. There's a lot of rocks. Peter's a little rock. They're at this huge rock as Caesar Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. This rock, by the way, is incidentally, it's the base of Mount Hermon, where Peter would have been familiar and the disciples would have been familiar because they read the book of Enoch and they quoted the book of Enoch. They would have been familiar with the gates of hell because they said the angels that sinned, God cast them into the gates of hell or in Hades and put them there and reserved them to the end to where they could be judged at the last day. And they would have known that's where the watchers came, the 200, and conspired to go into the daughters of men. So the Jewish mindset, because the book of Enoch was 300 years before Jesus, they would have already, because they read that book, they quoted that book, Peter quotes it, Jude quotes it, it's in the Bible. So they would have had that as a mindset like, okay, why did you take us 25 miles north from where we were, the Sea of Galilee at Bethsaida? Why did we walk a day's journey to this cult, pagan, orgy, sex, love, and rock and roll town just to ask us this question and just to prove the point that you're going to establish your kingdom and your church and the gates of hell that we know about is right there to prove this point. So go to the next slide. Jesus is the rock. Let's just kind of cruise through this idea because we need this as the foundation. This is the foundation that we built upon. It's what we build our church on. It's what we build our life on. There's no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus. Go to the first verse. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes in him shall not make haste. Romans says, Whoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Whoever believes in him shall be saved and shall not perish. He's the stone. He's the stone that the builders rejected, and he's the stone that if you accept him, you're saved, but if you reject him, it's the same stone that will come back and at the end of the times destroy the last age of the empires of the Romans and all the ones that preceded him, the times of the Gentiles. And he's really at Caesar's Mecca where they exalted the, the, the Roman emperor, where they were giving worship and homage to him, and all the gods that he worshipped, Jesus at that place is saying, I'm going to establish my kingdom, and it's never going to fail, and it's never going to go away. It's going to be eternal. And he's laying a foundation right there. Go to the next one. For 1 Corinthians 3.11, For another foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.4, this one 
This one's interesting because this is the one that's taken from Numbers, where the rock that followed them in the wilderness wandering, the, the Israelites, Jesus defines it, the Bible defines the Bible, and all drank of that same spiritual rock, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, and that followed them, and that rock was Christ, capital R. Go to the next passage, Luke 20, verse 17, and he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner, and whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but whomsoever shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Um, go to the next verse, Romans 9:33. As it is written, Behold, I lay on Zion a stumbling stone, a rock for offense, and whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. Next passage. Acts 4.11, I love this. This is the stone which is set at naught of, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men and women whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. Because whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's interesting that in Israel, all that's going on is about a cornerstone that's going to be set in Jerusalem. Because remember, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, Jerusalem is the burdensome stone hanging around the necks of the nation. And they've got to get to a place where there's a deal brokered where they could roll out their cornerstone. The, the stone that was the real cornerstone, because Jesus said, hey, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up again. They said, it took us 45 years to build this. What are you talking about? He was referring to the temple of its body and the death, the burial, the resurrection. They rejected the real cornerstone, but they have a physical cornerstone, and it's called the Temple Mountain Faithful. They have it on a flatbed truck, one of those, like, you know, Middle Eastern, like, Mercedes type with the canvas on the back. And they're going to, every time they go to roll it out, it's World War III declarations. Israel's in the place right now to broker a deal, which was what the... The normalization with Saudi Arabia and Israel before Hamas launched their thing, they were going to broker a deal. Jordan, the king of Jordan, has custodial stewardship over the Temple Mount where the Mosque of Omar is, where the Temple Mount is. And they, they knew that once that, that um, right to, to steward that real estate was brokered over to Saudi Arabia, they were going to give a deal to Israel to where they could rebuild their temple again. No wonder this war started. It's all about a stone. It's so weird. It's about a stone. But the stone that they really rejected was the one that's the actual head of the corner, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the next passage. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows up into him a holy temple in the Lord, in whom we are also built together for a holy habitation of God through the Spirit. So obviously, Jesus doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, bricks, boards, but born-again believers. You are the temple of God. He's the chief cornerstone. But as we move on through this lesson, I want to bring something up. As I mentioned, the Caesarea Philippi was this pagan Greco-Roman city to the far north of the Sea of Galilee. 
It's in what today is called the Golan Heights, which is a disputed territory. Russia wants the Golan Heights. It has one of the largest natural gas uh, reservoirs in the whole region. It, it, whoever owns that is going to be um, independently wealthy as a nation. So that's a heated area. But as I mentioned, it's where Mount Hermon is. Um, and I'll show you all the maps. But Caesarea, here, keep going on the slides. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is situated in the boundaries of the tribe of Naphtali at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's called Peneus in Greek, but Bineus in uh, Arabic. And it is, uh, has about 50 houses, many ruins and columns, towers, temples, a bridge, and a remarkable castle there. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, it lay, this is according to Josephus, who wrote this about 2,000 years ago, by the way. He said, um, it lays at the foot of Mount Hermon, Lebanon, near the sources of the Jordan, in the territory or the tribe of Dan. Remember, if you know your Old Testament, Dan was the one that turned away from God and turned to most of the, the most heinous pagan um, fallen deities when they turned from God. And it's at the northeast extremity of Israel. It was originally called Paneum, from the cavern in its neighborhood dedicated to the god of Pan. And Paneus, Philip the Tetrarch, also the only good son of Herod the Great, whose dominions and Paneus lays, having beautified and enlarged it, changed its name to Caesarea, or Caesar, in honor of the Roman emperor, and added Philippi after his own, his own name. That's how you get this dual name, after Philip the Tetrarch and the Caesar of Rome, in honor of the Roman Empire. And he added Philip as his own name to distinguish it from the other Caesar, which there is Caesarea Maritime, which is the one on the coast. So he wants you to know there's two Caesareas, but one's Caesarea Philippi, the other one's Caesarea Maritime. So Jesus went up to the one that was the religious, polytheistic epicenter, epicenter of the day. It'd be like he went to Mecca. So... This quiet and distant retreat, Jesus appears to have sought with the view of talking over with the Twelve the fruit of his past labors, according to Josephus in his book called Antiquities. So the water there, um, so yeah, let's, let's look at this. Go back to one of the, yeah. So this water, so this is the base of Mount Hermon. This, this is the cave today. This is what this cave looks like. There's a temple before it, built before it, and I'll show you what that looks like in a minute, but that's the cave where they call that, that's the pits of hell. They, they, all, they all knew that, all the Romans, all the Greeks, all the, all the Jews, all the Arabs, they all knew the, the legend, the myth, they all, they all knew that. That was, that was the place, and there was natural springs that came up from it. It was said that they were to, when they were to have sacrifices, if they threw their sacrifice in and it went down into this spring that was coming up from the cave, that the gods were satisfied with the sacrifice. If it didn't, then the gods weren't going to answer their prayer. So there's a lot of like beliefs surrounding this. This river, by the way, feeds the Jordan River. What? Jesus was baptized in... Jesus is taking back everything, by the way. He's like, nothing's going to be left to this false pagan gods. It, nothing's going to be left. Go to the next slide. So this is just kind of a zoomed up thing. You'll notice in, these are called niches, N-I-C-H-E-S. These are carved out of the sides. And they have a little subscription dedicated to a particular deity. This one I think is Pan. Uh, I forget what this one is. And there's one that's next to it called Nemesis, uh, one of the, the Greek gods. 
And so they would, you know, they'd have offerings and stuff like that. Here's the big cave. Um, pillars everywhere. You could go there and visit it today, and this is what it looks like. You could watch, you could YouTube it and watch videos and get more background if you're interested. But to me, what was kind of shocking is you read this passage, and all of my Christian experience, when you go to Matthew 16, it's either I'll build my church or who do men say that I am. I knew nothing of the town. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the word Caesar, I was like, Caesarea, that's kind of lispy when you say it fast. Say Caesarea five times fast. I didn't know anything about Caesarea, what the name meant. Go to the next slide. This is just more close-ups of these are all, you know, dedicated to false fallen angels. Go to the next one. Next one. Kind of getting the idea. Next one. So this is interesting. This is kind of a someone's describing it. Describing it. Here's a, a, a niche to Hermes, um, Nemesis, Pan. These are all Greek gods that were formerly. Babylonian gods, formerly Persian gods, formerly Egyptian gods. They're just recycled gods. They're just fallen angels that repackage themselves to present themselves to different cultures in different ways. Go to the next one. This is uh, what it would have looked like about 2,000 years ago. So here is the grotto of Pan, that big, you know, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades behind this grotto. But this is actually a, um, a temple dedicated to Caesar. So the emperor of Rome. This right here is the actual, um, because Pan is a wilderness god, um, he's like the god of the shepherds, the god of the goats. Um, you know, they didn't want to give him a building because, they, because he's associated with the wilderness and the outdoors, but they would make sacrifices to Pan. This right here is the, the temple to um, Zeus, and um, these are tombs to other gods, and behind that was Nemesis, and uh, I, I think there was um, a goddess there, I forget which one uh, it was associated. But you kind of get the idea. Go to the next slide. It's another picture, looking at it from a different angle. And you know, it's interesting. Um, remember when Titus in 70 AD, he and Jesus told them there's not going to be one stone left upon another. They're all going to come and take it. The, Titus took the remaining Jews up to Caesarea Philippi. And at the very base of the temple of Zeus, this will make sense to you in a little bit, he, for sport, had the Jews slaughtered for sport. Yeah, that's a reoccurring theme in history, by the way. This isn't even anything new. So you can see here, um, just all of the, is there, the, when we say polytheistic, poly meaning many, theists or theos meaning gods, this, is, this has been the history of mankind, polytheism, until King Jesus shows up. And he's going to change the spiritual world order of things to where these guys are going to diminish and Jesus' church is going to increase. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So keep that up there for a second. 
So I just think it was interesting that this is a very significant place. Mount Hermon, where, where everything that's associated, and by the way, in Matthew 17 is where we read about the transfiguration of Jesus. You know where he goes to be transfigured? On the mountain right there. He goes up to the top of Mount Hermon and then he turns the lights on and he says, by the way, I'm the light of the world. He, it was transfigured. On the very mountain where all the false gods have had made it their ground zero to take over the world out of the, out of the reign of, of God, the creator. Can you imagine created beings conspiring together, saying, you know, yeah, sure, this is a good idea. We could oust God and, you know, wreck the plan of God for what he has for mankind on earth. So this is the very place where all this is happening. Jesus got, he was transfigured at Mount Hermon, the water that feeds the very river that he was baptized in and where the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. That's all there. It's all there. So this inconvenient one-day hike, could you imagine 25 miles with sandals and rocky, unpaved places? And by the way, Damascus is on the other side of Mount Hermon. It's in Syria, and that's where Paul was on his way when he gets saved, right in this area. It was a major kind of thoroughfare, but could you imagine just taking a day's hike just to hear, ask this, hear this question? I'm sure there was a lot of other things said that weren't recorded in the Bible with Jesus and his disciples. But you get there, and the first words you hear is, who do people say that I am? The word Christ means the anointed one. You're Yeshua Mashiach. He means you're the, you're the Savior. That's Yeshua. Christ, Lord, means potent, the ruler. He, he's the king. He's the anointed king. He's the chosen one. He's the Savior. And all these fallen deities offered whatever they offered at a, at a price. You had to sacrifice. In fact, when they would do um, human sacrifices, and they, they also had a, a tradition that if blood would come down into the river that you saw from they, when they'd throw the bodies in there, if they saw the blood come down into the river, which I was just thinking sanitary reasons, I'm like, what do you guys drink out of that river? Nasty, because they'd, they'd throw goats in there because Pan was a god of the goats, and then human sacrifices. And I'm like, who's drinking out of that river? You know, <laughs> that's what was going through my mind. But let's kind of look at this, because I, I, I did something funny. Uh, to me, it was funny. I called this the original IHOP, International House of Pan. <laughs> and it was a Drew International crowd. But let's look at Pan for a second, just to, just to get an idea of who this character is. So Pan, it's so where we get their name, Panic, Pandemic, Pandemonium, Pansexual, Pan, not an insignificant god in history, which the Greeks just imported him over from other cultures before them. And then the Romans uh, hijacked him as well. Pan is a very kind of, uh, he's not one of the lesser gods, he's kind of a prominent god in the pantheon of these fallen angels. Well, let's look at kind of some things about Pan, just so we get some background. I don't want to spend a lot of time. But this is from a pagan witch It's given a description of who this god is, Pan. For those who don't know, Pan is, he's a god of the ancients, a Greek god and a universal god. He has many names. He is a deity of nature. His form is of um, human and goat, so he's half man, half beast. Remember, we talked about chimera stuff before. Yet divine. 
He rules nature, in particular wild nature. He is the god of sex and lust, also of prophecy and beekeeping. That's interesting. And of natural human impulses. He does have a dark side, however. Oh, watch out for his dark side. <laughs> As nature does, he can evoke a maddening panic or erotic bliss. Picture rape. Yeah, the god of pan. Not a good dude. Um, go on. So when you look him up, it always says the great God. And I, cr I added that cross there because I don't want to call him great at all. I didn't even want to have that capitalized. But the not-so-great God, Pan. Pan seemed to be the epitome of the heathen gods. He represented excess and debauchery, the vices of the world uh, of matter, and was in the embodiment of paganism. Pan became the embodiment of Satan in Christian iconography. You know, when people think of Satan, they're like, he's got hoven foot, and then those the horns, and he walks around in a red suit and all that. So there, that's him. Go to the next one. So according to Di Avelia, the Greeks, like all the Indo-European nations, seem to have figured to themselves the light of the storm under the form of a bird of prey. When they had received the image of the thunderbolt from Asia Minor, they placed it in the talons of an eagle and made it a scepter and even the symbol of Zeus. It was said, they, that the eagle brought the thunderbolt to Zeus when later uh, the letter was preparing to fight the Titans. The eagle has been a symbol of Pan who gave it to Zeus. This is super, super interesting. And I know this isn't supposed to be a lesson in uh, Greek mythology, but this will make sense here in a second. So just kind of track with me here. So Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. He took them there in this inconvenient journey to make this point about the gates of hell, his church that he's going to build. He's the rock. He's saying it at this pagan epicenter that's also a rock. So it's competing rocks. It's like the Game of Thrones right before our face. And, and it's interesting that Zeus and Pan are there because Zeus is the chief of all the gods, but Pan somehow hooks him up with um, the eagle and, you know, because he's the god of nature and whatnot. So let's look into Zeus. Zeus, by the way, father of gods, the head of the pantheon of gods. In fact, the, the, the temple of Zeus in uh, Athens, which I've been to, by the way, it's not there anymore. It's just columns. But when it was uh, erected and in its splendor and glory, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Huge, magnificent sculpture. Could you imagine a sculpture as tall as the ceiling here and just some ripped, you know? I mean, I, when I was sitting there posing for that, when the sculptor was trying to get an idea, I'm like, oh, man, I can't flex my, my one pack uh, that long. But they are just phenomenal with the, the, uh, the artistic ability of their day. So let's go on with Zeus. So Zeus was the king of the 12 Olympian gods and the supreme god in the Greek religion. Zeus is often referred to as the father and the god of thunder and the cloud gatherer. Zeus controlled the weather, uh, offered signs and omens. Zeus generally dispensed justice, guaranteeing order amongst both the gods and humanity from his seat high on Mount Olympus, which would have been in, in Greece. Zeus's symbols are the thunderbolt, the eagle, and the bull. Keep that in mind. Because as you start to learn about what's really going on behind the scenes, Baal, 
Beelzebub. It's the god of the bull. It's just recycled. Notice with Zeus, he'll always have an eagle. Always. The eagle is a huge part of his whatever he thinks is so awesome. It's a thunderbolt in his hand. Um, <clears throat> so, moving on with Zeus. So, like I said, these gods are just recycled. So the Greek Empire took over uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over the Babylonian Empire, but the Roman Empire took over the Greeks. And the Romans, this is the goddess Nike, by the way, the goddess of victory. <clears throat> um, the Romans, by the way, they just changed the name from Zeus to Jupiter. But it's the same god. It's the same god. It's the same one. Also with the eagle. Also with the eagle. So... I'm just bringing that up because Jesus is just trying to, he's, he knows all of this stuff. So in Mesopotamia, uh, Zeus was Baal. Egypt, he was Osiris. In Babylon, he was Marduk. In Persia, he was Mithra, later Mazda. If you drive a Mazda car, go, you go, right? Maybe it's powered by lightning, I don't know. In Greece, he's called Zeus. And then in Rome and Jupiter. In the Bible, he's called Satan. So when Jesus is showing up to the gates of hell and the temple of Zeus is there and Pan, his little like, henchman, Jesus knows all. He, like, he created all the angels and the fallen ones. So, and they've tried to corrupt mankind and make people worship the pantheon of gods. The Lord of Lords and King of Kings shows up and he takes them to this inconvenient place, a day's journey, nothing really significant there to this pagan epicenter where there's sex and orgies and human sacrifice, and he says, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the anointed. You're the chosen one. You're the Savior of the world. And he said, no one revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will have nothing to do to stop it. This is very significant. Go to the next slide. So Jesus said, upon this rock, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Caesarea Philippi was built up in dedication to the Roman emperor, but notice the name, Caesar, Tsar, Kaiser. The term Tsar is the Russian equivalent of the Roman title Caesar. Remember the Tsars? The Germans had adopted the title Caesar in the same way, but they called it Kaiser. Because if you see the C, we say it with an S, like Caesar. The Germans see it was a hard C or a K, and they called it Kaiser, but it's the same thing. It, so a Tsar of Russia was an emperor, a Caesar of Rome was an emperor, and a Kaiser of Germany was an emperor. And these emperors derive their, the, the derivative of their power and their, their right to rule comes from this pantheon of gods that give them power and give them instruction. And Jesus is saying, oh, you think you're going to have an empire of gods? You think that the demons that are, that are influencing these emperors, these czars, these kaisers, these caesars, that want world dominance and they want to control the thoughts and the minds of people religiously, politically, you think that's going to happen? No. I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I, I will be successful. And they will not. 
That's very important to get because this has been a Game of Thrones that, that's been playing in the background and we've, it's like we haven't known what's been going on. Did you know that the three monarchs during the time of World War I, King George IV from the UK, the Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, and the Tsar Nicholas II of Russia were all closely related cousins? Did you know that? What the heck? So, this is a, we're not even getting to the good stuff yet. I'm not kidding you. We're not even to the good stuff. It's going to blow your mind. It, I'm still reeling from it. I'm still not even over it yet. So go to the next slide. What we're in kind of like what you might call the age of empires or the time of the Gentiles. I think the next slide kind of is a review slide from when we're in Daniel. Go to the next slide. Remember um, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision or this dream, but he doesn't tell anyone. And then he says, whoever could tell me what I dreamed, in other words, read my mind, and then interpret it, I'll save his life. <laughs> and so Daniel's like, well, I can't, but I know the God who knows everything. So Daniel went to the God of gods. It says, here's the interpretation. You're the head. And he's like, ooh, I like that. I'm the head. I'm gold. And he kind of goes from the most precious to the least precious metal, but gold is soft. Down when you get to the bottom, it's hard, but it's not as worth as much. Or the, actually, the clay is soft, but the legs are bronze. So he goes from Babylon to the Medo-Persian. Persia, by the way, is modern-day Iran. And it's interesting because the Persian Empire, when they had conquered Babylon, they were the ones that allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple which is the one that the Romans came and destroyed, which hasn't been built yet, yet this is the one that, their corner, the cornerstone, the problems in the Middle East right now, this is what it's all about. So, and let me go, go over that again. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, and Daniel told them that. So, so Iran allowed the Jews to go rebuild, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, that whole, that, that's what those minor prophets are about, go back and build the walls and go ahead and build the temple. They did build it, and the, Jesus came to the temple. There had to be a temple when Jesus came. There has to be a temple for the Antichrist to come back and a temple for Jesus to come back and kick the Antichrist out and take the throne. But they allowed the Jews to do that. And remember that passage in Genesis where God says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. It's interesting that the, the Iranian people have been around, not the corrupt Islamic government that's there now, but the Iranian people have been a people ever since then. They haven't gone away. They're still there. So Greece, though, conquers the Medo, and they had, to, they had to join forces, the Medes and the Persians, because they couldn't take Babylon by themselves. So they had to kind of form an alliance. Then Greece, Alexander the Great, he just came like just a storm, just out of nowhere, boom, boom, just not with guns, but <laughs> he's just taking everyone out, and they really conquered fast, and they, they really influenced people when they came into the culture, um, not Hellenized it, but they, they, would, they were really, well, they were the philosophers, they really kind of, they came with intellect and philosophy, and they really kind of converted people that way, uh, but look at this. Pagan, polytheistic, the Babylonians, pagan, polytheistic, 
pagan, polytheistic, many gods, many gods, many gods, many gods. Rome came along and like, oh, see you later, Greece, you know. And they didn't come with philosophy. They just came with power and might. But the Bible talks about, yeah, these legs are of iron, but the toes are ten, and they're with clay, and clay and iron don't mix. And then Daniel chapter 2, he's talking about the seed of the clay and the seed of the iron. They're incompatible. So we know that the Roman Empire didn't... No one took over the empire. It just kind of it imploded from within, and it scattered. So this... Go to the next slide. So this is called, what in Bible prophecy and Bible students, this is the time of the Gentiles. What does the time of the Gentiles mean? It means there hasn't been a king on the throne of Israel since Nebuchadnezzar took it over in 500 and something A.D. before Jesus. So for 2,600 years, there hasn't been a king. And then 2,000 years, there hasn't been a temple. And like 1,950 years, there hasn't been a Jews back in the country. But in 1948, they're back in the country. And they're back at war. And they're back talking about a temple. Are we getting the picture? Or is this all fantasy? Do, do you see what's going on? This is real life stuff unfolding, unfolding in front of our face. So that we're in the times of the Gentiles, but since we're... The Roman Empire has been scattered for hundreds and hundreds of years. If this is a timeline where the end of the times of the Gentiles is marked by Jesus coming as the stone again, he's the rock, and he destroys the feet, which destroys the whole image of the Gentile empires, the age of empires, where do you think we're at in the timeline? I'm not setting dates. I don't know. It could be a... But we're, we're not back here. We're not in the, the, his groin section. <laughs> we're not in his thighs. Ooh, Ramsey's thighs are number one. We're not in his guns area, the biceps. We're not even in his larynx or coccyx area. We're down here. No Roman Empire. Eastern and Western, by the way, is um, what the Byzantine and the, the Orthodox. And, but here, these... these Rome's symbol was what? Have you ever seen it? With, uh, what's that guy? Tatum, Tathium, Jehor. He's a wrestler, I think. The, I think the women find him attractive. He's an actor. He was a big, he was a, not a real wrestler, but a big time wrestler, and then he was an actor. Statum, Tathium, Anyways, he was in the movie called The Eagle, where you have to go get the eagle, because he worked for the Roman Empire. I'm trying to, Jason, what? Not the bald guy that's way good looking with bald head, not me. I, I'm like, dang it, how do you pull it off? Um, he's a wrestler, I think. Yeah, I, the Magic Mike dude. There you go. So he's in the movie with the, I, all the women are like, what? I know that one immediately. I mentioned the eagle and none of the women say anything. I mentioned Magic Mike, and all the women know exactly who I'm talking about. Interesting. So the stone that comes back wipes them all out. At the end, but in the meantime, the eagle has been influencing these Gentile nations for centuries. So 
Zeus's right hand is an eagle. Egypt's symbol, by the way, was the eagle, Horus. The French Empire, by the way, during Napoleon's reign, eagle. Byzantine Empire, eagle. Roman Empire, eagle. Russian Empire, eagle. Third Reich, eagle. United States of America, eagle. Now, am I saying the United States is pagan? No, okay. In God we trust. It's on our money. I'm not going to say I love this country, but just because you put in God we trust on the money doesn't mean that you actually trust in God. You actually have to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him in your life and have it affect your policies and politics and all that kind of stuff. And I would say for the most part, our country has been blessed because that has been uh, the way that things have gone. But it's interesting. The association with all of the ten toes, these scattered remnants of the Roman Empire have popped up in certain places at the times of the Gentiles. And they all kind of, some are more righteous and some are less righteous. But we're kind of in the time of the Game of Thrones. Go to the next slide. Here's some just countries that share the Egypt or the eagle as their Albania, Austria, Czech, Egypt, Germany, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Moldova, Montenegro, Palestinian National Authority, Poland, Romania, Russia, Sudan, Syria, Thailand, United Arab Emirates, United States, uh, Uzbekistan, Yemen, whatever that one is. Interesting. Because these empires, they derive their power from the idea of a polytheistic association with a pantheon of gods in a rejection of the one true God, Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. They don't want him or some distorted version of it. Um, and instead, you could see this playing out of the time of Gentiles in the last kingdom of Daniel's vision, which is Rome, that was scattered all across the, the nations, represented of ten different toes. And when we get into it in Daniel, by the way, these ten become seven, these seven become three, and this three becomes this little horn, and that's the Antichrist that unites all of these empires and rules with the one world government. It's Satan's last surge, his last attempt to rebel against God and to get as many people to reject God as possible. Go to the next one. I mean, this doesn't really show up, but it's the Roman eagle. This is the Nazi eagle carrying the swastika. So go to the next slide. So the real Game of Thrones. Here's where it gets interesting. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. This blew me away. So Jesus is addressing seven different churches. I should have included a map. This is all... All of these seven churches are in the, it makes like this um, candy cane figure uh, and, and, and succession too. It goes in that order. All on the west coast of Turkey, which is called Asia Minor in the Bible. But he's writing to a real church in Pergamos, which is a real city. You could go there today, by the way. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right, he who has a sharp sword with two edges says these things. I know your works and where you live even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, 
who was the bishop or the pastor of the church of Pergamos, my faithful martyr, which the Greek word for martyr is also translated as what? Witness. Was slain amongst you where, where Satan dwells. Satan's throne, Satan dwells, Antipas. It's said that Antipas was martyred because he was, he was preaching the gospel message of Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the one and true living God uh, without going through Jesus. And because he was monotheistic and he was basically denouncing the, the polytheistic bent, which all of the Gentiles have had, and Jesus came to reverse that, by the way, and you could see, you know, where, where is the temple of Zeus, by the way? Not there. Where's the temple of Diana? Where's the temple of Nike? Where's the, where, are the, where are these gods? Where, where did they go? What happened to him? I'll tell you what happened to him. Jesus happened to him. But in the beginning here, when it was first starting, he's like, I know something about you guys. I have some things I want to help you with, but I also, I haven't forgotten Antipas. And I'm going to explain something that happened to Antipas, which I think is very interesting. But Jesus is calling out Satan. He says, I know, because Satan is not, om, he's an omni-nothing. If he's in Pergamos, he has to be, he can't be in Pergamos and China and Washington, D.C. at the same time. I know you think he lives in Washington, D.C. All, all day, right? And he, maybe he vacations somewhere else. But at this time, Pergamos was in the Roman Empire. They took it, they took it from um, Greece, or the, the Ottomans. Um, but go to the next slide. Let's take a tour. This is really... Maybe turn these lights off if you could. These, if, I think it's flooding it a little bit on the screen. I want to take you through this ancient city of Pergamum really fast. So we're almost done. But this is where the good stuff gets to. And then we'll wrap it all up with Jesus building his church on the rock of Christ at the rock of the gods. So this ancient city of Pergamon, go to the next slide. Here's what it would have looked like. So this right here, not the temple of Zeus, it's called the altar of Zeus. The altar of Zeus was the largest altar dedicated to a god uh, in antiquity of its time. And so what Jesus is writing to the church of Pergamos, he said, hey, I know where Satan's, I know where Satan's throne is. And I know what happened to Antipas. I know where you guys are, and I know where Satan is. Because they had to be syncretized. You've got to imagine, if you were a Christian in the first century and you got saved, this, most of your cities are going to be um, polytheistic and pagan and idolatrous. That's why Paul has to deal with foods dedicated to idols all the time. And so... Uh, you know, we have to learn in our day, too, uh, what does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? Just like how they had to navigate that. Now, go to the next slide. This is a, a current aerial photo of this. So the, the Temple of Zeus would have been here. This is an amphitheater where they'd perform, uh, you know, concerts and theatrical stuff and uh, this was another temple, uh, I think, to Dionysus or Artemis. Um, there, Zeus, you'll always find, usually, you have a goddess um, around him, always. But you'll notice that, that the temple of Zeus isn't there anymore. Go to the next slide. Another picture. Go to the next slide. This is what it looks like today. 
pretty steep, right? You could fit, I think they said 15 to 20,000 people. 2,300 years ago. Okay. Go to the next slide. This is the actual altar of Zeus, part of it. They have recovered 90% of it, and they have relocated it. So Satan's throne was actually discovered in 1878 by a German archaeologist named Hume. He agreed with the Ottoman Empire, or they made an agreement, to take the altar of Zeus as he unearthed it in Pergamos. He found it in 1878. He took this altar back to his home country, Berlin, Germany. In Berlin, Germany, this altar was fully reconstructed and finished in 1889. Go to the next slide. Leave it there for a second. 1889 was the time that Satan's throne, the altar of Zeus, was reconstructed in Germany in 1889, which is the same year, wait for it, that Adolf Hitler was born. Okay, interesting. Not drawn any conclusions quite yet. The museum in Berlin, Germany, it's called the, the Pergamum Museum, and they've changed it to like the Berlin Pergamum Museum, was open to the public in 1930. It's the same year Albert Speer, the Third Reich architect, or Hitler's architect, and Hitler co-opted and decided to make a replica of the altar of Satan, the altar of Zeus, in Nuremberg, Germany. Does anyone know the significance of Nuremberg? Nuremberg, Germany, was where Hitler would speak. Go to the next slide. Go to the next slide. Oh, stop here for a second. So if you'll look, all of these, so these brick by brick, this archaeologist took all this back to Berlin, Germany. All of these things on the, on the sides, I wish I had close-ups, just, just have fun on Google, YouTube, have fun with it. Because all of these gods on the side, the, first of all, the craftsmanship is impressive. I don't know how the heck they pulled it off. It is so detailed. But it tells a story. And the story is Zeus and all the, you know, he was the father of gods and all them, had a fight with the giants. And they conquered the Titans, which the Greeks call them Titans, the Giants. It's interesting. Um, the Bible talked about Giants way back in Genesis chapter 6. And there was a great deluge, and something happened, and God wiped them out, and then they came back. Um, but this is very interesting, because they would have been painted, by the way, back in the day. Um, but this is huge. I think from here to here, it's 100 feet. And from the bottom to the top, it's like 30 or 40 feet. So this is no small. And you can see from the people, the kind of the scale of it. So this would have been the largest altar on the world dedicated to Zeus, where they performed sacrifices. The sacrifice at this altar would have been something like this. Remember I said Zeus is identified with a lightning bolt, an eagle, and a bull. In the front of the altar, where, what they would do is they had a brazen, uh, huge, life-size scale bull that was hollow, 
and it was made out of bronze, and they, they had an opening where they could put their sacrifices in it, close it and lock it and heat it up. Well, as they would heat it up, the person on the inside would cry and yell from the pain of being heated up in this bronze sacrifice, and the smoke would come out the nostrils of this brazen bull, indicating that this God is now satisfied with this sacrifice. That's why Jesus says, I know about Antipas. That's how he was killed. Interesting, right? You can kind of see this is an ancient description of that thing. Go to the next slide. The word holocaust is derived from the Greek word holocaustin, a translation of the Hebrew word ola, meaning a burnt sacrifice offered whole to God. I got ahead of myself, but in 1935, from the replica of the altar of Zeus, where Jesus said it's the seat of Satan, Hitler comes up and he makes his um, speech with all the pillars of light. He called it the cathedral of light where their spotlights were shining straight. He wanted to make it look like more ethereal columns. <clears throat> where the brazen bull would have been, where the smoke would have gone out, he makes a speech and he introduces his doctrine of the final solution. And it's from the altar where he's proposing the final solution, the Holocaust, which is the burnt offering to this God named Zeus, which Jesus identifies as Satan. Are you, are you with me? So, when Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi, Caesar, place of the gods, we think in our mind, like... Those guys are so stupid, don't they know, like, wood and gold, and that stuff doesn't talk back to you. You know, they, what are they thinking? Of the 60 million people that were killed in World War II, how many of them were Jews? Just anyone. Six million? Six million? What's 10% of 60 million? It's almost like it's a tithe to a false god. Just saying. A tenth of 60 million, 6 million Jews from this place, this altar replica, the seat of Satan, Hitler makes this statement that the final solution is going to be the Holocaust, which no one knew at the time that that was the Greek word from the Septuagint for a burnt offering. And if you don't believe me, just read Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 10. And I have a Septuagint on my computer. I went to Leviticus 5.10, and I looked at it, and I'm like, holy cow, it's Holocaust. Because the computer does all the work for me. Um, it's not like I'm smart. I want to say this, though. This really kind of blew me away. Just this week, October 23rd, 2023, the altar of Zeus. I didn't know about the altar of Zeus and the altar of Satan until this week, until I started studying this. And I was enraptured. I was fascinated. I'm like consuming it on my way to work, at work, on my way home, my spare time. Jen comes into the room. I'm just watching like YouTube. I'm just, I'm just like totally just, you know, in the zone. I had, none, I had no ideas about any of this. 
So I'm like, I didn't know this was in Berlin. I didn't know this was a museum that you could go see. I don't know if you saw um, a few slides ago. Turn it back where there, it's blue, where it talks about the, um, the gates of Ishtar. Okay, this is also in this museum as well. These are the actual gates to Babylon, which was a, one of the wonders of the ancient world where they had the hanging gardens, but this massive blue, when you walk up in the desert and you go to Babylon, which at that time would have been in Iraq, you would have seen this impressive, huge blue walls, and to enter into the gate, which gates, by the way, in the Bible are huge. So the gate of Ishtar, if you know Ishtar, it's the goddess of war, she was hooked up with Marduk, which was the, the main god of Babylon, which is the same god of Zeus for the Greeks, <laughs> which is the same god for the Romans, the Jupiter. So how does Berlin get the actual gates of Babylon, which is Ishtar, and the actual throne of Satan? How do they do it? How do they, how do they pull that off? Okay, so I'm so stoked about this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this like unfolding before my eyes. These gods are working behind the scenes, and though Jesus has diminished them greatly, it's like there's is there some sort of return? What's going on? Is there a connection? Or the, does this just mean nothing at all? Is it just a coincidence? What in the heck's going on? Well, <clears throat> in October 23rd, 2023. I wanted to plan a trip just to go to Berlin to just check this thing out, see for myself. On October 23rd, 2023, when I looked on the internet, you could check it out. The museum has been closed permanently for the next 14 years. I was like, wait, what? It's been open since 1930. Albert Speer, the architect, said, let's make your Nuremberg speech platform the replica of the throne of Satan. People have been going there for years. They have this also significant thing, not to be overshadowed by the temple of Satan or the altar of Satan, but the goddess of war? That's the goddess of war, by the way. Babylon used to be the greatest empire on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, right? The archetype of the Antichrist. Hitler, kind of a good archetype of the Antichrist himself. They're both really good at that, you know? And I'm like, I want to go. Well, you can't go, it's closed research a little further, come to find out, Dave, you might know this, who's the, who's the, I don't even know what you call the guy in Turkey, the leader of Turkey, Erdogan, Erdogan. is he a good guy or bad guy? <laughs> There's an alliance going on against Israel right now, also mentioned in the Bible, from Ezekiel chapter 38, Gog and Magog, Russia, Turkey, Iran. Turkey has been telling Germany that throne of Satan, the altar of Zeus, is ours. You took it in the late 1800s and we want it back. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea what's going on, but something's going on because currently as the war in Israel is going on, Turkey, Russia, and Iran, which is the old Persian Empire, <laughs> are rallying themselves against Israel. Now let me just kind of, I'm gonna wrap this up because I went a little bit longer than I thought on these particular things. 
but I want to connect something. Go to, go to the passage where it says 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. So when Paul had to deal with these things in the places that he established churches, just so you know what's behind the scenes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 18, he says this, Behold Israel after the flesh, my people, the, the nation. Are not those who eat the sacrifices also partakers of the altar? Can someone shut that door in the back? What then do I say? That the idol is anything or that an idolatrous sacrifice is anything? But I say that the things which they, the, the nations, get this, the polytheistic world, the things that they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So when you're going to the altar of Zeus, what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is, yeah, you're making a sacrifice. It's not really Zeus. It's the demon behind Zeus. It's the spirit behind it. So you're thinking, that is so lame. Those guys are dumb. Don't they know that something made out of marble, as impressive as his abs are and his pectoralis majors and his biceps and his guns and his forearms and his lats and his glutes, and you're like, oh, slow down, Neil. You're not really into that. Like, as impressive as they made these gods and goddesses look, they weren't dumb. They didn't think, like, it's the, you know, and they're there for an hour. How come it didn't move? How come it didn't move? I thought it was going to move. They weren't, no, they knew it was the spirit connected to it. They just made a visible, um, they made, made an icon or an idol visibly of what they were connecting and communicating with invisibly. And so Paul is saying, listen, I don't desire that you should have fellowship with demons, he says in, in verse 20. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and a table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Paul is using this idea with, the, with idolatrous Corinthians because he knew these weren't just idle idols, <laughs> play on words there. They actually had powers behind them and those powers behind them were demonic and satanic and dark. That's why when Jesus shows up to Caesarea Philippi, he knows what's going on behind these altars and these the, to Pan, to Zeus, to Nemesis. And he's like, okay, I'm showing up. I know these guys conspired years ago to you know, mess up the world. I'm, I'm, setting, I'm bringing not a new world order in the bad sense, but a new spiritual order in the real biblical sense. Jesus is taking things back. He's establishing his throne. And you're like, well, what, what's he doing? Like, why hasn't he, why is it? He's going to come back and finish it. But if you'll notice in Western civilization, wherever the gospel went, cultures changed. These idols and these polytheistic uh, sort of empires diminished. And the power was, their power was impotent and gone, almost non-existent until recently. Interesting. Go to the next one, though. Then in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 16, 32 and verse 8 and 9 is interesting, too, about the table of nations. But here, <coughs> Paul got his idea from the demons behind strange gods and idols from Deuteronomy, the law. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to devils and not to God, to gods whom they knew not. To new ones newly come up, whom your fathers did not fear, you forgot the rock who brought you forth and ceased to care for God who formed you. 
so Paul is just quoting the Old Testament when he's, when he's addressing um, the Gentiles in the New Testament that were surrounded by all of these polytheistic cultures. So I'm going to just wrap this thing up here. Go to the axis of evil. So what we're really dealing with is there's the polytheistic axis of evil. Um, Pentecost was the shot heard around the world, seen and unseen. God deposits the Holy Spirit into his church in Acts chapter 2, and then the, the gospel, Jesus said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. And so uh, your first uh, nine chapters is just to those regions of just Jews, and then all of a sudden it starts to go to the Gentiles, but you see kind of where we're at today, about 2,000 years later. Go to the next slide. <clears throat> There's this access of evil. Russia, Eagle Nation. Iran, Eagle Nation. Turkey, Eagle Nation. But these guys, they, they don't want anything to do with God. Go to the next slide. And it's interesting because, um, uh, not all the Iranians, by the way, because I've heard recently more Iranians are getting saved in the Middle East than any other nation out there, which I find fascinating. But in the beginning, in Acts chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul is spreading the gospel, now when they had come and they'd gone to Phrygia, the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, that means they weren't going to go east, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And so you see, go to the next slide, you see Paul's journeys where he starts going this way and the gospel starts hitting Turkey, uh, Italy, or Turkey, Greece, Italy, and it moves on up into Europe, and it comes across the Atlantic to America. <laughs> And you see that the nations that have been impacted by this kingdom that doesn't come with signs and, and uh, visibility, it it's a kingdom where the king's inside and it, and it permeates through culture and through people and it impacts people. And the gates of hell can't stop it. It can't prevent it. In fact, the gates of hell have not, they have, the gates of hell has no power against the church and its influence and its spread because it will grow and it will grow and it will grow and finally Jesus will, Christ will come back for it and the devil's ticked off about this whole thing and he tries to thwart it. He tries to get rid of the Jews. He's trying to do it now. He's trying to get rid of the church. He tries to silence us. But if we believe the Bible, he can't shut us up. He can't stop us. In his book, I want to do this really fast. In his book, Return of the Gods, Jonathan Kahn, it's an interesting book. I haven't read the whole thing. just heard him talk about it. How do the tablets of ancient Mesopotamia and the mythologies of God reveal uh, what we're now dealing with? What does the future hold? Where exactly the God's taking us? How would it affect your life and your future? What's the mo most critical thing you need to know? And then go to the next slide. It's kind of like promoting the book here. Is it possible that these entities, which are known as gods, the gods of the ancient world, have come back and are affecting our life right now? Could their existence explain everything that's transforming our culture, our families, our children, our businesses, our government, our technology, everything? What is the dark trinity? 
Did it come to America? Is it here? Exactly what gods have, have returned. And so people are starting to think in these, in, these, in these lines of thought to where they're like, huh, that's very interesting. And Jesus, when he established his church, at the epicenter of polytheism, the, the temple of Zeus was there. He's the chief of the gods. Pan, he's the guy that rules sex and drugs and rock and roll and indulgence. Uh, nemesis. Nemesis is the, you know, if you got an arch nemesis, it's the goddess of vengeance. All was there. And Jesus is making a statement, and I'm not going to go through his dark trinity, but he includes Baal, which is Zeus, um, Ishtar, which interesting. Um, he calls it the possessor, the enchantress, and the destroyer. And he describes how each of them are affecting our culture in such a way, which, by the way, Ishtar is also the goddess of sex. Um, and they used to cut their body parts off and become neutral in their gender identity They're as a priest to Ishtar. So what he's saying is these gods maybe are coming back and distorting a culture, and this could only happen when this culture turns their back on the one true God. And so he's just, he's like a prophet almost, indicting America. Don't turn your back on God. Don't turn your back on God. Because when people turn their back on God, there's, there's, uh, there's a flood of other influences that will come in behind it to replace God. And it won't go well for you or your culture. So where we're at, church, for 2,000 years ago in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, I will build my church. Way back there. This line right here indicates it's the last 2,000 years, but to fit it on here to be scaled, it's been in the last 2,000 years. It's been the time of the Gentiles. I mean, we've been through the age of empires, the Game of Thrones, so to speak. We're currently in the, in the time uh, of the church age where these polytheistic cultures and gods have been diminished so greatly that they almost seem like myths and like we don't even recognize them. Because the gospel and the Holy Spirit has been such a restraining, impactful force since Pentecost. And it's spread. It's been holding all this evil at bay. And it's been, the Bible calls it the restrainer that's greater than the man of sin. It's been going. Well, that restrainer and the church is going to be removed. The man of sin will be revealed. The beast. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, that Satan will give his throne, it actually mentions the word throne, and power to the Antichrist, the beast. We're at this any moment, any time thing where he says, watch, be ready, for in a time that you think not, the Son of Man comes. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed, and this corruptible will put on incorruption. And he says, comfort yourself with these words. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and meet the Lord in the air. Not, not Jerusalem, not, you know, no, meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Why? Because of the second advent, the return of Jesus, when he comes back to Jerusalem, when he comes back to Mount Olives, this dude will have already signed a peace treaty for seven years, which is, I think, what's really going on in Israel right now. It's preparing, it's preparing the idea to, to get to a place which hasn't been for 2,000 years. Where we, Can we finally give Israel peace so they could have their stinking temple 
so they could do their stinking sacrifices, which God says, sacrifices and offerings I don't want. He already did it. It was Jesus. But I think all right here, this, we're in this zone. We're, in, we're in the, coming toward the end. And so I just want you to know that Jesus, he took that inconvenient 25-mile foot walk trip all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, where Caesar was being worshipped as the God Emperor, where Zeus was being worshipped as the Father of Gods, where the gates of hell were that all the disciples would have known about from the Book of Enoch. They're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And Jesus claims victory over all the Caesars, all the emperors, all the kingdoms, all the gods, hell. You know, he came that they might have life, and life more abundantly. The thief comes but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So you have the god of the underworld, death, Hades. This is a god, by the way. Um, and then you have Jesus, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings of life. So we're the church, and we could go forth boldly. And I hope, hopefully we do. And hopefully with all of this historical stuff today that you would have been encouraged to be like, wow, there was a lot going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about. That increases my faith. This thing called the church is a big deal to Jesus, and I'm glad to be a part of it. And I can't wait for our church, what God's going to do through this church as we move forward in faith, not being scared. Amen? Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you that you established your church 2,000 years ago, built on the rock, the rock that your God the God of everything, the God of comfort, the God of grace, the God of peace, in you contains everything, and in you contains life. If I, pr I pray, Lord, if there's someone here that's never received the free gift of eternal life, I pray today would be the day. If someone's even listening, I just pray that they would receive Jesus just by simply calling on the name of the Lord asking Jesus to forgive their sins, to come into their life, and to give them that free gift of everlasting life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.